Welcome to Working Dog Radio. Broadcasting the bite. All right, let's talk about training. Uh, we're going to be at HITS in Scottsdale, Arizona this year, 2020, August 18th through the 21st. Eric and I are actually going to be instructing. Uh, so head over to HITS K9, letter K number nine dot net. Get signed up. Don't wait to the last minute like I know all of you people do. Head over and get signed up now before the prices increase. RayAllen.com. If you own a dog, train dogs of any sort, pet dogs, working dogs, any dog you could have, RayAllen.com, one-stop shop for anything you need. Stick around during the podcast. Listen for the discount codes, RayAllen.com, best in the business. Yeah, one of our favorite partners who signed on for the rest of this year is Dogtra. Uh, excellent remote collars and the ball trainer. I got like four of those things at the kennel. They're awesome. Popper and a dropper. I've got the Pro and the first version. Um, and one of my favorites is the 1900S. Head over to Dogtra.com and check out everything they got. And then listen in the, in the middle of the episode for the discount code. If you want a great dog, great training, and want to go hang out in Florida and do all that, especially in the wintertime, our great friends at Southern Coast Canine, uh, they're amazing down there. They've been doing it a long time. they got single-purpose, dual-purpose trainer schools, handler schools, admin schools, down in the Daytona, Florida area, southerncoastcanine.com. And one of our favorite 501s is the guys from Georgia Canine Foundation. After dogs retire, there's a lot of associated costs, and the departments generally don't cover those. It's on the handler to, to cover that. Those guys at the Georgia Police Canine Foundation take care of those dogs post-retirement. Head over to the website, check it out, buy some T-shirts, donate some money, and take care of the dogs after they get done working. So if you uh, want a kennel, you want to be in a kennel business or you have one you need to expand, horizonstructures.com is amazing. They will show up at your place, prefab, pre-built kennel, plug it into your sewer, into your water, into your power, on your property, drop it, hook up, put dogs in it that day. It's amazing, horizonstructures.com. All right, we are back. Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. With me, as always, is Eric Stambro, and I am Ted Summers. Eric, what's going on? Police dogs and pet dogs. What about you? <laughs> no pet dogs, just police dogs. I got a handler school that started. I got four dudes in school. Uh, our buddy Travis, as part of HRG, just started uh, a 25-week uh, handler school here at Torchlight. So he's going to be with us for a minute. Um, and speaking of HRG, you and I are getting ready to head out to... Uh, East Coast, Dover, Delaware. See the kids, the Delaware State Police. Uh, what in ten days? Next next week we leave. I leave a Sunday yeah. out there. So by the time this airs, I think we'll yep, be there. They got already. some nice dogs. Yeah, for sure. They have a. They definitely have a weight requirement. Dogs that'll be over hundred pounds. They all have giant dogs out there. So. <laughs> oh yeah, they have a weight, I, weight I, thing I, going on. Yeah, I don't envy the fucking decoys on this one. Not as bad as that dog in Memphis. Holy shit, Dono, that big Malinois, yeah. which I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure is. His full name is Don't Nobody Want to Get Bit because that was a big, gnarly dog. Hmm. Um, speaking of decoy stuff, uh, the newly designed HRD website, everybody can check out. Uh, we're going to start running decoy schools. Um, we're going to do, I think, three or four this year. Uh, Ray is kind of working on that in the background right now. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be uh, an, an interesting new venture that we're adding to the HRD offering. Um and other than that, uh, it's been pretty quiet. We're gonna pretty much booked up to the end of the year. Um, so yeah, we got a couple of extra dates up. I think September's open and one other date. So 
if you want, hit up Ray at Ray at police at hrdpolicecanine.com. He can get you signed up and then we can get the year filled up and know that we're coming to see you. But uh, yeah, March is going to be Indiana. Um, and I'm supposed to mention too that uh, the guys at the Southern Coast down in Florida, some of our great sponsors, uh, have a trainer opening. If you want to be a trainer for one of the largest police kennels in the country, hit up Peggy Heiser at Southern Coast. Uh, it's pheiser at southerncoastcanine.com. Uh, she gets you hooked up. Send her your resume and tell her we told you to go. Send her that. So, yeah, train uh, dogs in Florida. Be cool. Train, yeah, it's never cold. They're like south of Daytona. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like 60 degrees there right now. Those dudes that work down every time I see pictures of them, they're walking around flip flops and shorts, and I'm up here freezing my ass off. And I know you are too. So, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this is an interesting episode tonight. Uh, I, the guy that we have on tonight is a uh, is going to be a co instructor with us at um, Bravo Three, uh, which is going to be in October in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, with our friends from Tripwire, Ryan and Josh, and the kids. Uh, have a great seminar that brings together SWAT, um, EOD, and canine guys, so all specialties. Um, and kind of like a shared skills uh, platform. Um, and it's a working one, too. So they have some stuff that we'll have access to, um, you know, some of the shoot houses. I'm sure Ryan's going to blow some shit up, uh, which he always does, which is always fun. So, um, but, you know, Eric and I frequently talk about stuff where we, we don't really understand why it works, but it does. Um, you know, we're going to talk about one of the things we do at HRD that always seems to work for outing dogs. And I've never understood why it works. I just know that it does. And it works all the, all the time. It works all the time. And no, I don't mean a breaker bar. Although those do work too. But, um, you know, our guest tonight is a, like a cognition and like a, I'm going to let him explain it. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to screw this up. So, um, <laughs> I see he's already laughing. I, cause I was going to, I was like, I have this big intro plan. I'm no. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> With us tonight is Brian Gagey from Canines on Duty. Brian, how are you? Hey, I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you are like a canine, I don't want to call you a psychologist, but like... what? Yeah, that's kind of been the term that uh, okay. people have given me over the years. Um, but I'm, I am finishing my degree in cognitive psychology. I was going to Purdue in Indiana, and then I, I moved uh, about six months ago up here to uh, Mass. So I'm just getting all my VA records uh, transferred over to here. And I, I'm not sure which college I'm going to go to up here, but you know, I'd like to get that finished. And um, I've, uh, I've just always been intrigued ever since I was a kid, you know, if, on how things work, why they work. You know, I'd ask for like a remote control car for Christmas. And the first thing I did before I put batteries in it is I, I disassembled it because I, I had to know how it worked. So that's kind of been my obsession ever since I was a kid. And, and then, uh, you know, I spent some time in the Marine Corps, and, and they only honed that. They wanted you to know how things work, every single piece of it. Knowledge is power. So that, that's, that's kind of what uh, keeps me going. Excellent. So give us a little bit of your background, like how you ended up talking to Eric and I. And, uh, like, we'll kind of move through the conversation from there. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll make this quick. Um, I grew up around dogs my whole life. Ever since I was in diapers, we lived inner city Youngstown, Ohio. And my dad uh, had this big German Shepherd, you know, and, and so I've kind of been around big, tough dogs my whole life. And then I uh, joined the Marine Corps. I became a scout sniper. And that's kind of where we started learning about some basic understandings about how important the handler is and, and how they affect the performance of the dog. Cause that, that was actually the first thing we were supposed to shoot. 
Um, I'll never forget they asked us the question, if uh, if you see a canine team coming, do you shoot the dog or do you shoot the handler? And most of us thought, well, shoot the dog. And I said, no, shoot the handler. The dog's nothing without the handler. And, of course, having worked with dogs prior to that, um, I was like, okay, but why? You know, I want to know why. So I started hitting the library, kept studying. And uh, then we finally got internet on base, was like groundbreaking. And that was right before I was getting out. Um, I went to work for a sheriff's department. Uh, I was the primary decoy. My original training was through Rudy Drexler. I don't know if you guys know the name. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the name. I know. I obviously haven't met him, but I know the name for sure. Sure. Yeah, he's been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to know more about, okay, but why are you telling me to do this? And uh, I, I started noticing what little I learned about dog behavior and the, the human interaction in the Marine Corps, I started teaching that to some of the guys that I was working with. And what we found is that the more handlers had an understanding of why dogs do what they do, the better the dog performed for them because the handler was now educated and, and they understood the why and what to look out for. So it, re- it started improving the behavior. And then I just, it, something just clicked in my brain and I became obsessed. So I've been really studying canine psychology since pretty hardcore since 2001 um so you know the whole psychological aspects of behavior and how our behavior affects them a lot of the times and so many handlers don't realize that that is a huge deal that your behavior will affect the dog so it's it's uh it's been pretty groundbreaking for me over the years and you know i I don't know everything i probably never will it seems like every time i go back for another semester i'm like oh man i thought i really had a handle on that and then my professors teach me that, uh, now you'll never stop learning. So, and, uh, you know, in the end, that's how we ended up meeting. You know, I just started uh, putting videos out there and, um, just, I, I have a passion about, um, the handler mission and, uh, you know, intercepting a flow of narcotics, apprehending or tracking down and apprehending suspects that have broken the law. So I think that's pretty important to keep our community safe. So why not just give the information out to help them do a better job? So, and then we ended up meeting uh, uh, so, based on um, my videos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, your your page canines on duty. You you go on there a lot and um, talk a lot of uh, pretty heady stuff. Um, it, it's obvious when you listen to it that um, a lot of us and Ted will get into this uh, of the whys of everything. But there's a lot of us that have been trainers forever that do some things and they work. And we, I. Ted's probably the same way, but why am I doing this? Why, why to the new handlers? They're like, why? And I'm like, you are annoying the shit out of me. Stop asking. Me. <laughs> Mainly it's probably because I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or I say, because it works and I've tried, I've tried the other way or I've tried this or I've tried that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you know, one thing that Scott always kind of tells me is like, you got to have more than one way to do it every time. Not every dog is the same. And I'm like, Oh, you know, that makes sense. So, you know, I put a lot of pieces together over the years and, you know, certain dogs do things a certain way. And if I have to do one, like if I have to do a dog one way for imprinting on odor, I can almost guarantee you, I know the best way to imprint that dog on tracking just because of how he was imprinted on odor, whether it was Dutch boxes or whether it was poppers or whatever it was, I can almost like a, without fail be like, okay, we don't even need to fuck around with the other stuff. I just want to do this side. And usually I, it works out. And yeah, you know, I, I have a kid in a trainer's course now and he's like, how did you know that? And I'm like, well, okay. So, 
So a long time ago, and I had this dog and he's, he kind of looks at me and I'm like, yeah, I know it's a long story, but I mean, it, it you know, I, I hope what everyone takes away from this conversation is like why we do the things that we do. Um, and I don't mean like myths that like master trainers spout or whatever, like, Oh, it's the way we've always done it. So we're going to continue to do it though. It's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about shit that's successful and the reason why we do like why we imprint ways and you know, why we teach tracking a certain way, why we teach outing a certain way, why environmentals are important, why all of these things are, have a global impact on the dog in terms of like what they think or how they see things and how we influence that as a handler. Cause one of the things that Eric and I hate is handlers. One of the things that I hate particularly is more than one command on an own behavior. And then somebody that just continually fucking nags their dog with a leash with leash, like popping them over and over and over again. Fuck. I hate that. And right. I just refuse to let my dogs do it or my guys do it. But I see it all the time going around the country and I'm like, what are you doing? And I don't think people realize that they get into patterns of behavior and dogs get into patterns of behavior. And then it just spirals out of control. All of a sudden you got a problem and they don't know how to fix it. So hopefully we yeah. can give some people some insight tonight. So, um, wow. yeah, Eric, yeah, for sure. So one, of, yeah, one of the videos that you posted the other day that we saw, um, we, we'll get into the heady shit right now. So, uh, kind of this, this was one of these that I, and we'll get into some things some on some of the forums that I've seen you jump in on some discussions, but actual videos that you talk about things, um, you talked about uh, a video about biology of belief. You want to get into that mm -hmm. a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I think that um, to be a sufficient trainer or handler, you have to understand why humans and other animals act a specific way. And a lot of that can date all the way back to birth. So um, Dr. Bruce Lipton, I've been following him for quite a while. Uh, he was actually in stem cell research. And one of the things that he noticed in an experiment that he was doing at a university, I don't remember what university he was at, but he took cells like human cells and he put them in a petri dish and they begin to multiply and they were all genetically identical and he removed some of the cells put them in a petri dish put a specific type of nutrient and he grew bone then he took he went back to the original petri dish took another uh sample of cells put them in a completely separate petri dish changed the nutrient and then he grew skin cells or and then muscle and then all this other stuff and the conclusion that he came to was that when you change the environment, the cells change. So it's really, it's not genetics that create, like that, that's like the old school psychological beliefs that genetics is everything. But now we have this term called epi, epigenetics, which came out in the 90s. And the, the theory is that it's the environment that alters the cells, which alters everything that we are. So for example, um, when Dr. Lipton put cells in a Petri dish with toxins, the cells closed up and moved away from the toxins. So each cell, we, we look at ourselves in a mirror and we see like one individual, but we're not. We're actually a community made up of 60 trillion cells, each one with kind of a mind of its own. So when there's negativity in the environment, like toxins, cells literally close up. And that's why having, for example, a dog that has uh, high anxiety or fear the cells are going to close up and restrict. So, for example, um, that's one of the, the, the side effects of cortisol. Uh, for those handlers that aren't um, too familiar with cortisol, 
get used to that term. You need to know that term uh, pretty well because cortisol is the fight or flight hormone and it's present when we're in a state of fear or in, under anxiety or stress. And we need that to survive, but it has some negative impacts on the body. And it's true with dogs too. Scientists have actually run a lot of tests on canines to determine that, yeah, it's, it's identical in humans as it is in dogs, but cortisol actually weakens the immune system. It inhibits the action of the white blood cells. It increases the, the animal's chances of infection and it promotes weight gain. It literally restricts the visceral region, which is like for us, it would be like from the waist up to the, the clavicle. And so it has your heart, your lungs, like all the organs that keep you alive. And it squeezes them and it pushes oxygenated blood out to the extremities for the fight or the flight. So it's actually, there's a lot of damaging effects to keep a dog in this state of anxiety. And so, you know, to make a long story a little bit shorter, because I could literally talk about that for hours. I won't bore you guys with that. But I said, okay, well, let's go back even further. So we know that the cells respond to the environment by creating these chemicals or the brain creates the chemicals like cortisol that have an effect on the body so that we know that that's true. The, the idea of epi, epigenetics is actually true. But then I said, okay, well, let's go a little bit farther. And Dr. Lipton said something that really stuck out to me. He said, okay, did you know that a baby is born with the instinct to swim? So if a mom is in a pool and she has the baby, the baby comes out of her uh, uterus and it swims like a freaking dolphin. So why is it that we have to teach children how to swim? The, the instinct of a human child is to already know how to swim. So why is it that we have to teach them? And I said, wow, well, that's a really interesting question. And he said, it's because the environment changed. And what changed in the environment? Well, it was mom and dad. So they conditioned the child to be afraid of water because as the child was growing up, every time the child was around water, they freaked out. Get away from the water. You know, you're, you could drown. And then all of a sudden, you know, five, six years later, you slap a bathing suit and you're like, jump in. And that's why these kids are clawing at your necks as parents, like, you know, a freaking cat trying to climb a tree. And so I said, okay, well, is that true in dogs? And if you think about it, he said something very profound. He said that we used to think that mothers were just like an incubator for a baby. Um, and that's why typically doctors, for example, in, in human terms, when, when uh, a mother goes in, they ask three primary questions. Are you taking vitamins? How's your diet? And are you exercising? But it's much more than that. How about how do you feel? How is your environment? What, is there a lot of stress in your environment? And the reason why that, those are so important questions to ask is because how does a baby get fed when it's inside the mother? Do you guys know the answer to that? <laughs> I mean, the umbilical through cord? The, yes, yeah. but what is moving through the umbilical cord that actually oh. feeds the fetus? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'd say <laughs> the blood. It's, is it affected? I, my belief would be it's, a, it's what the mother was eating, and it's their nutrients well, somehow. Yeah, okay, well, that's part of it because – if you think about it, everything that you eat gets digested and pulled through the stomach lining and the intestinal walls, and it goes into the blood. The blood is what carries everything to the rest of the body. So you take a mother that lives in a very stressful environment, and stress equals cortisol, which is triggered by the hyperpituitary adrenal gland in the brain. And so then you have high levels of cortisol flowing through the blood that gets fed into the child. And this is mother's nature's way of preparing uh, a baby 
to live in the environment that it's going to be in. And so it's literally experiencing the environment before it's even born. So I said, okay, well, then if that's true in humans, is it true in dogs? So I reached out to uh, some people that are much smarter than me, and they said, well, yeah, because dogs have cortisol. We know that because of blood and urine samples that we've taken. So, yes, if a mother lives in a very stressful environment, those puppies are being fed these levels of cortisol, which is preparing them for the stressful environment that they're going to be born into. So you're literally creating stress before a puppy or a human child is even born which explains a lot of the, hmm. the neurotic behaviors of certain dogs as they get older. I mean, that's why we wash some dogs, because they're overly anxious or they're fearful. The question is, can you change it? And what I've found is the answer is yes. But to change it, you have to change the belief, because the belief is what creates our emotions and behaviors. You can't have behavior without belief. And that's also true in dogs. So if a dog believes that it needs to be stressed out based on the situation or the environment, then it's going to feel those emotions of, of fear or stress and anxiety, and therefore it will behave that way. You can't have, you can't have behavior without a belief. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, so we, the question is, go ahead. Yeah, we, I was talking with my, I got a handler school going on, <clears throat> and they're in their first week. And I'm trying to explain the difference between a change of behavior and a train, train final response and how, you know, you can't have one without the other and blah, blah, blah. So, and I'm like, it's, you know, nothing more. And one thing Scott told me was like, you know, beliefs are nothing more than behaviors that have been ingrained over, you know, a long period of time successive, of successive approximation over time. And I told him, I was like, that dog firmly believes that every time he gets into odor that a ball is going to fall out of the sky. Like that, mm -hmm. he believes that at his doggy soul, <laughs> like every, every fiber of that dog's being believes as long as he finds odor, something's going to fall out and hit him in the face. And they're right. like, Oh, and they're, I'm like, that's what he's looking for. So, you know, and I, you know, I, like I take for granted sometimes what Eric and I and our guys like us do because we do it so often. We live in a little bubble and I'm, you know, for me, what is kind of like obvious to a lot of people is like, how do you do that? Or why do they do that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. They just do. So <laughs> at least I can explain that part of it. So, right. I mean, but yeah, you know, you're hundred percent right. Like the belief system and the dogs, you know, we have to have them firmly believe that when I yell random canine police department or random police department, canine, make yourself known or the dog will find you and bite you. Like he's got to know that he's going to find somebody in that building, or at least he's that he thinks that there's somebody in that building. He believes there is right. for sure. So, you know, we, we teach those things over and over and over and over again to create those beliefs. But yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting take on it for sure. Well, that's so all training my, is. my question it's is then, yep. so you have the dogs that have, so for us, when we do training, um, and, uh, it's, and it comes with testing and everything too, when we're testing dogs, you know, that the biggest thing that we fail dogs on is environmental problems. Mm -hmm. Problems with the slick floors and the dark rooms and the elevated steps and the open back things. Um, I attribute some of it to um, a dog never having seen it. Um, so when you're talking about overcoming issues like that, that go all the way back to, to when the dog was born and before and right after that in their belief system, have you ever um, had a dog that you could not change their belief system when it comes to environmental fears? 
I have. Um, I actually worked with this, uh, <clears throat> I think it was maybe around an 11-month-old chocolate lab, and it had severe food aggression. And, uh, you know, I've, I've fixed this thousands of times in the past. Prior to that, I specialized in aggression rehabilitation for uh, over a decade. And I just couldn't get anywhere with this dog. So I reached out to uh, some neuroscientists, and they said, well, you have to think about it. Aggression, for example, is it's a response to what they believe to be true. So in other words, they believe that their life is in danger. And food is a, is a factor of life, living. You have, to, you have to eat in order to get the nutrients to survive. So it, it literally is about survival. Uh, we don't know the dog's history because it, it was a rescue. They found it on the street. So it's possible that maybe the humans neglected the dog uh, when it there was food down. Maybe they took it and gave it to another dog. Maybe the dog was running wild on the streets and other dogs bullied it. So it, it finally came to the realization that, oh, if I fight back, then I get access to the food. And same way you guys, you know, that we all train dope dogs, uh, you know, like Ted, what you were saying, you have to create the belief that every time I indicate something good is coming, well, it's the same thing with like aggression or like hesitation going into a new environment. And those are what we call embodied cognitions. So the way uh, one of the professors that I interviewed for my research paper, um, we were talking about belief and he says, well, you know, for example, you will not understand what true love is if you've never experienced it. But if I have, I'm going to try to tell you, and of course you're going to get frustrated when you don't fully understand it. So, and, and those experiences are what we call embodied cognition. And that's, that's how we survive and continue with life. And that's true with dogs. The dog didn't know to be aggressive. If it wasn't born already aggressive, then it had to have a experience to say, well, when I get aggressive, then I get access to the food, which is the reward. Well, with this dog, I wasn't getting anywhere. <clears throat> well, then I find out that the dog was hit. And so I reached out to a neuroscientist, and he said, well, a lot of times if the dog suffered any head trauma, there could be lesions on the brain. And I said, how hard is it to get lesions on the brain? He said, well, a dog's skull is very much like a, like a baby skull in humans. It's, it's softer it, because, you know, the calcium has to build up, so on and so forth. He goes, I've literally seen it where breeders – they have little kids and the little kids are carrying around the puppies and maybe the little girl drops the puppy on the floor. And if there's a minor concussion, even it can create lesions on the brain, which can alter personality. And so my point is there's a lot of variables involved. Um, there could be uh, maybe something viral that's eating away a portion of the brain or a bacteria could be lesions on the brain. So typically if you can't fix a behavior, it's due to some sort of underlying medical issue that can't be fixed. Outside of that, I've been pretty successful at rehabilitating dogs. I would say 98% I've been able to rehabilitate by changing the belief. Yeah, you had a story. So what where, where would... Oh. Go ahead. Real quick, what would the belief be uh, in the dog, you think, when it comes to a dog that you take him into, say, a... Um, an old school or something that have the, the 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 slick tile floors, and they suck up against the wall and they're just terrified of it. Some dogs I've seen that have come off of farms and people's homes and they've never never seen it. Where do you think they would create, and how do you think you could work to overcome that? Because we just fail those dogs, right? We don't even give them. Yeah. The shot. I don't got time. I don't want to mess right. with that. We fail them immediately. So, can you talk about that at all? Yeah, sure. 
Well, again, that goes back to the embodied cognition. So a dog that's never experienced a slick floor before, they're going to get an instantaneous perception of what, what it is and how they gain that, we don't know yet. So if they look at that and they say, oh my God, this is going to be bad for me. Not everything is based on prior experiences, just like us. You can assume that something is going to be true that maybe isn't. So, and I, this is extremely hard to explain for me. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning all this stuff, so, but I understand it. Uh, I feel like based on my research and my studies that maybe there was a time where the dog wasn't sure-footed and it stumbled and fell. Who knows? Could have been when it was a puppy. You know how their legs kind of sprawl out from time to time. But then it looks at something similar or maybe it's just an instantaneous belief. Um, I don't feel comfortable on that. And either, no matter how it, you cut it, no matter what, can you quickly get the dog over it? And the answer is yes. So I, I did this experiment on about 100 dogs. And I said, okay, if, if a dog looks at me and learns through social referencing, are you guys familiar with that term? Yeah, modeling, social, social yeah. No, yeah. go ahead for it. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. I am. So, yeah, go ahead. Okay, social referencing is a nonverbal way of communicating. That's what little kids do between the ages of uh, zero and I believe around five or six years. And basically they're watching the humans around them, the adults, like mom, dad, and how they interact in different scenarios and, and uh, all that other stuff. And, and so they're logging all that information. They're like downloading programs. And what we found is that dogs learn through social referencing. So here's what happens. What it, people inadvertently make the matter worse. So when you walk into an area with a slick floor and the dog is like, holy shit, I don't understand this. I'm not comfortable with this. I'm freaking out over here because I feel like something bad's going to happen. And if their behavior changes to a negative state, whether it's anger or frustration, then the dog is going to look at that and say, oh, well, they're stressed out, so then I'm right. I need to be stressed out over this. The dog's not really interpreting that uh, you're pissed off. That so they they're have doing that based of off of how we react to what they're doing. That's correct. So then I said, okay, now that I know all that information, what if I take a dog who has a problem with slick floors, I put a smile on my face, and I say, come on, buddy, let's go, and I drag their butt in there. I don't give them a chance. I don't, I don't try to use treats. I just drag them in there. And once we're in there, I just wait. And then all of a sudden they take a step, and I say, oh, that's a good boy or good girl or whatever the case may be. And then pretty soon they take another step. Next thing you know, I pull a dog out of, or a ball out of my pocket and bounce it and then they go after it and they slide a little bit and they stop and the moment i see them freaking out i drag them another foot and i say come on buddy let's go and some of that has to do with uh the thalamus of a dog's brain so the thalamus is uh and this is extremely important so for you handlers and, and trainers if you guys that are listening if you guys don't know what this is pay attention this this was profound when i learned this uh, about 12 years ago <clears throat> So the thalamus is responsible for sensory information, like hearing, sight, touch, pain, smell, so on and so forth. But it also allows a human and a dog to selectively focus and concentrate on only one thing at a time. That's the book definition. And I said, okay, but why? Why does it make us only be able to focus on one thing at a time? And it's because the thalamus is like an operator switchboard. It pulls in information from the environment and it has to determine where to send pieces of information. So if a bear is charging you, you get zoned in on the bear and the brain, the thalamus says, okay, 
I need to send in this information over to the motor cortex. Then the information goes over to the motor cortex that takes off over and then we run or we climb a tree or whatever the case may be. So the thalamus is about the size of an almond and a human, and it has a very, very massive job. So if you relate that to the question that you asked, um, as far as the floor, the moment the dog gets zoned in on the floor again, we know that that the floor, the slick floor is already creating the fear. My job is to take his mind off of it. So when I pull him or her another foot or two, they look at me like, well, well, why'd you do that? Come on, where's your ball? And then they're like, oh yeah, instantly they forget about the floor and then they focus on something that they enjoy. So I'm literally altering the belief and over time, and what I found, it's usually 20 minutes or less, that dog is playing ball on that slick slick floor because I created a positive embodied cognition. So one of the ways, yeah, yeah, and one of the ways... If I'm not fortunate enough to raise a dog, which is when I raise them, I try to expose them to everything, slick floors, ba- open back stairs, like weird grates, like stuff that makes noise, loud noises, no noise, mm-hmm. like anything that's weird, right? Like stuff that pops up. And um, typically those dogs don't ever have a problem with it. Um, the next episode right. for everybody listening after this, um, we're going to be interviewing Mike Suttle, um, who will talk about that. So we'll leave that for the next episode. But um, for the dogs that come in from Holland that, or from Europe in general, or wherever that I didn't raise and then Eric didn't raise, um, you know, that's one of the first things I look at is environmentals, right. And how, you know, yeah. if we got a problem, like what it is. And if you talk to every trainer that's listening to this, it's like, Oh, I've had dogs with dark room problems. And all I did was throw a ball in there and it was fixed. Well, this is why. <laughs> so, yeah. and that, if you were to ask me like, well, how did you fix it? I'm like, I threw a fucking tennis ball in there and you went and found it. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you'd have a problem anymore. I don't know. What do you want me to tell you? So apparently right. it's the, that's that, the, that promise. is true. <laughs> that it is true. It's like a, you got to break that tunnel vision on the dog. However, um, I have seen, and I mean, the worst case scenarios are the dogs that have the environmental issues where, and it, it might be that, that uh, fight or flight they were talking about where their flight is a complete shutdown, like lay down on the floor oh, yeah. and just freeze mm-hmm. and lock up and you cannot get them past it. Um, right. What do you, I mean, is, is that where we're, th- their brain is just getting overloaded with that, with substance and they're just... Um, and that is their version of flight? Um, yes, yeah, the complete shutdown. But then I remembered, uh, I lived in Japan for a year, and I took Aikido. And Aikido is, it, the translation is the way of harmony. And it dates all the way back where there was a lot of bloodshed, you know, samurais and ninjas, and uh, more the original uh, Moreu Shiba, I think I'm saying it right, he said, okay, there's too much bloodshed. This is the way of harmony. So we, w- we want to be able to defend ourselves, but without the killing. And so they do a lot of joint manipulation. And as I progressed through the, the ranks, I learned that if you can manipulate a joint a certain way, the subconscious mind will only let it bend so far because the subconscious mind is what keeps us alive. And it'll say, oh, if that goes any further, it's going to break. So go with it. You've got to relieve the pressure. And here's a phenomenon or a phenomenal truth that humans and most animals only use the conscious mind only two to four percent of the time. Ninety-six to ninety-eight percent of the time, we're operating under subconscious control, meaning we're not consciously aware that it's happening. 
So when you manipulate a joint, the subconscious mind takes over. You don't need to think about it. it your body just instantly goes. I don't know if you guys have ever had a wrist lock put on you. You know how you instantly fold? Yes. If it's done right? Oh, yeah, it sucks. Okay, the, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, that's the subconscious <laughs> mind taking over. So the dog is making a conscious choice in the beginning to freeze and hit the deck. Like, I'm not going anywhere. When they repeat that enough, it goes to autopilot. So I said, okay, what if I, without, I don't want to hurt the dog, but what if I hook the dog up on a leash and I just start walking and give, pull, give it, pull, give it, because, you know, I don't want to create constant pressure on the neck area and cause trachea damage and all that other stuff. But I just continually have forward motion. And what I found over the years is that if I keep going and I don't let the dog stay in that place, they typically, the subconscious mind takes over because they're like, oh my God, I need to go with this guy because it's too painful to stay here. I, and when I say painful, I don't mean physical pain, but it's, there's this like battle between what I want to do and what he's asking me to do, but he looks also pleasurable. So that's the other thing. I, I never yell and scream and command the dog. I'm just like, come on, buddy, let's go. Come on, buddy, let's go. And I pull, give it, pull, give it constant movement. And after a few minutes, the dog just gets up and comes. And it's almost like that subconscious mind just took over, not allowing them to stay in that place. And then I repeat, repeat, repeat. And then, of course, there's the reward, with whether it's food or a ball. I, I don't prefer to use food uh, for myself. In some cases, I do. But, you know, I'll, I'll, if they got good ball drive, I'll use a ball or whatnot. Then they're like, oh, my. seriously, if I just would have came 10 minutes ago, you would have threw the ball? And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I would have done. And they're like, okay, well, next time I'm going <laughs> to do a little faster. So when we're talking about those embodied cognitions, um, and, and I might be off on this, of course, because I'm, um, I was just a street cop forever. I'm not really all that intelligent, but, um, I have a question <laughs> for you and I think it, I think it revolves kind of around that. And my question is, and I'll, and I'll give examples before you answer, but can dogs have a singular enemy in that? Um, I get people tell me, well, my dog hates golden retrievers or my dog is good with everybody, but my brother, John, or, you know, he hates this particular dog. Um, and it seems to be that way. Do you, can you talk about, can they have that? Or we just, or, or is it because something that we are putting in them? Well, again, there, there are variables involved, like medical issues. Um, uh, in one study, they determined that high levels of aggression in dogs and in humans, it's not adrenaline or high testosterone. It's actually vasopressin, which is the ugly cousin of oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love cuddle hormone. Vasopressin is responsible for anger and aggression. So higher levels mean this person or this dog is just going to be aggressive. And I've reached out to multiple different uh, vets and, and universities and there's no cure for it. So like, you know, you can get SSRIs that increase dopamine and serotonin or decrease some, but with, for vasopressin, there's, there's no cure. So in a situation like that, then there's nothing you can do. But if there's no medical issues at all, then that means the dog had an experience. And I actually have a good story for that. Um, when I had my kennels, I just sold my kennels last year. I wanted to focus more on my studies and, and teaching uh, this stuff that we're talking about. But when I had my kennels, this rescue brought a pit bull. 
and this pit bull had scars all over its face, and it was only about 30 pounds. It was real small. And it was in between two dogs, and I think I had like a golden retriever on one side and like a chocolate lab on the other. And this pit bull would just run back and forth, play. Then there was a yellow lab next to it. Then there was a Great Dane next to it that was black and white, and this pit bull had no problems. And then one day I put a black lab in there, and it was even an older black lab. And the black lab came up to sniff through the, the fencing on the outside runs, and that pit bull grabbed its face and hung on, like, for dear life. I darn near had to choke the dog completely out to get it off um, once I heard all the screaming and yelling. So I called the rescue, and I said, um, has this dog had an experience with a big black dog? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, yeah, why? And I told them the story, and they said, well, that makes sense because the, where we rescued this litter of pit bulls from, the owners had two Dobermans that lived in the main home. The puppies lived in a just a real crappy garage. They weren't being cared for properly. And this puppy happened to get out, and they let the um, Dobermans out, and the Dobermans ripped this dog up. That's why his head's full of scars. So he, made, he had the embodied cognition of being attacked by a big black dog. And this is where I started learning about the mathematical equation that humans and dogs and other animals live by. So big black dog equals something bad's going to happen. I need to defend myself or I need to run away or whatever they did in the past. If they felt like it worked, then they're going to continue with that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we talked about um, kind of like in the pre-interview thing was, um, you know, when you start putting dogs in a situation where they become uncomfortable um, and you kind of hit on a little bit and talk about cortisol and fear and, and we say fear and I, and I tell people during my trainer schools and during my handler schools that <laughs> at its base defense um, as a drive is fear. Um, no matter how you cut it, it's fear of losing a mate, fear of losing resources, fear of losing territory, fear of losing your life, fear of losing something, right? Or fear sure. of something. And so, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative connotation. When you say that, people think their dogs are fucking street sweepers or something like, oh, my dog's not scared of anything. I'm like, I bet she is. And they don't necessarily have to be scared. Um, routinely, at every seminar we do. Okay. Um, we ask everybody, Oh, whose dog has a sticky out? And you know, 90% of the guys will raise their hand or handlers will raise their hand. And almost universally, um, we do, uh, what Eric calls elevated bites, which is where the dog is away from the handler and either up or down somewhere, um, on a surface that's not necessarily the like most stable. Um, and almost universally the dogs, mm -hmm almost always out now listening to you i mean we have eric what like a 95 percent success rate on that i mean 90 95 of those dogs are out rarely i mean we were in boston yeah we, we send them up right we yeah. real quick we send if i can find a real high elevated place we send the dog up there he gets the bite he's up there fighting for a little bit handlers down on the ground on the end of a 30-foot leash and almost all of them when i say okay well, you're going to verbally out your dog and bring it back to you they all roll their eyes or they all go Oh, this is gonna suck, or they laugh, or they look at their buddy, and and we out of what 20, 30 dogs at a, a uh, at one of our seminars, we only have to hang down and break off maybe two out of all. No of them. way. Yeah, and they're like, wow. and, and everybody is shocked, and you know, and you know, kind of what you're talking about is it hit on it a lot, like you know, you're interrupting the 
entire process that they normally, because normally they're out working in grass fields, right? They're not going to out there. And right. so like the context is completely different. And on top of that, if they haven't been exposed to it, that's kind of a funky like thing to do. And if they haven't been over, you know, exposed to that a lot, they're like, yeah, you know, there's other things going on in their dog brains other than bitey, 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 bitey. They're like, what the fuck is going on up here? Why am I up here? Why is this guy up here? Where's my handler? And mm -hmm. so all of a sudden, like, you know, you can almost hear like the tinnitus going and like the ringing starts happening in the dog's ears. And then they're like, dog name Los. And they come off and the handlers are like, holy shit. I'm like, recall him. Dog <laughs> name here. And he hops down and comes back and they look at me. I'm like, ah, or they look at Eric, whoever's running the station, and we're like, yeah, it pretty much works just about every time. On top of cars, the same deal. So, <coughs> excuse me. Talk about a little bit right before and, we go to break. About, and then real like, quick, every time yeah. they ask us why. Yeah. Every time like, they why? ask us why. Yeah. And we're like, and we're, and, well, we're <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't know. So, why? <laughs> well, you, you change the equation. So, uh, let me break this down. If a dog, for example, was not born with the knowledge of what a door is, and what a knock is on the other side. So at some point in its life, it had to experience it for the very first time. And the, with the first experience, there, there's the side of the door, and there's something on the other side making this noise. I don't know what to do with this information, the dog says. If no one's there to tell the dog what to do when the door plus a knock um, happens, then the dog is going to choose what comes natural, which is barking. Okay, so... The, the, there's a knock at the door and the dog says, what is this? I don't know. No one's here to tell me any different. Bark, 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 bark. If that releases some energy uh, out of the dog, then the dog's, if there was no consequence for the action, then the dog says, okay, now I know. Door plus knock equals bark my head off. But if you change that, and, oh, and it could go a little deeper than that too. It, sometimes it's not that simple. Sim simple. Sometimes it's door plus knock plus my house. Then I bark. And I've experienced this where you take a dog to another location, there's a knock at the door, and the dog says, well, it's not the same equation. You change the environment. So does this mean the same? And they, they might try it, but then all of a sudden, because you're in a different person's home, you have your dog on leash, and you give them a little pulsation with the leash, and the dog looks up at you, up at you and you say, knock it off. I don't, I don't want you to bark. And the dog says, okay, door plus knock at someone else's house means I keep my mouth shut. So in essence, you guys did the exact same thing. Think about the repetitiveness of uh, bite work. The handler's right by the dog's side. They're petting the dog, and they're saying, ah, so it's a bravo, you know, yeah. every single time. And the dog doesn't want to let go because that's, what, that's the equation. What you guys have done is you've completely obliterated the equation. The only thing is, that's the same is the bite, but you changed it. The handler's not near the dog. The dog's not on the ground where it feels it's safe. And so they get the satisfaction of the bite, but then when you yell out, they're like, oh, wait a minute, everything's different, so what, what am I supposed to do? And when you do that recall, that, that's actually phenomenal that you guys do that because now you're redirecting the dog, say, get back here. And then if you repeat this over and over again, you're going to program the subconscious mind to do that, and then you can go back to the original equation and see if that didn't program the subconscious mind. If it didn't, then go back to the high places. I've always just explained times. it because of context. Like dogs are extremely contextual and just because mm -hmm. they know like, and you know, and you'll hear experienced trainers talk about it. They're like, well, the dog knows sit in this building or the big knock on a lot of sport dogs is like, they'll do great on their home field, but you take them to another field and all of a sudden the context completely changes. So, yep. you know, and well, to and me, I've had that. right. It's like an environmental. I, I've had that. Yeah. 
Well, and I've had that with uh, protection dogs, because uh, at my kennels I did uh, personal protection dogs for civilians. Well, a lot of them would bring their own dog, and I would have to say, look, this isn't going to be police-grade quality, and they're like, look, I don't care. I just want a level of protection. And we'd get the dog to do phenomenal work at our facility, and then we'd say, okay, look, it's done. They would pick the dog up, take it home, and I'd always offer in-home sessions. Like you get 10 in-home sessions for the price that you paid. No problem. But they'd never call. But then all of a sudden something would happen, and the dog wasn't biting at their place. So they'd call me up, hey, you, what'd you do? My, my dog's not working. Did you even train the dog? And I'm like, yes, the dog, I, that's why I gave you these sessions, because the dog doesn't know that it's allowed to bite in that environment. we got to teach it. Now, of course, this isn't dog-wide. Some dogs, they'll bite anything anywhere. They don't care. But when I showed up and I taught the dog that they could actually bite in the person's home, that when they came under that realization, I created the equation, and the dog said, great, got it. I went home, and the, the customer was fine. Wow. I just tell people they do it because I'm a wizard and I know shit. <laughs> and that's yeah. why they then they look at it. Yeah, they look at it. It's the same thing they're looking when you use a brake stick. They're like, holy shit. I'm like, oh, it doesn't replace an owl. Like, but mind yeah, your own like, business, oh. rookie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I got one one little follow-on before we before we break. So um I you know, and I tell handlers all the time the A plus B equals C formula all the time. And I said Sometimes yep. we have to change the math problem, especially if the dog is creating his own C. Like he knows something and is getting overly excited or blah, blah. We just, we change up some of the math problem. Do you feel though, and I, I just want to make sure that I'm telling people correctly or incorrectly and, and I can fix it. When on the environmentals, one of the things, so when we do our HRD seminars, probably, I don't know, Ted, would you say half or maybe 30, 35% of the scenarios are shit that we find in the buildings that we're training in and oh, yeah. put them through some weird stuff, right? Do you find that, that those dogs um, completing a math problem that they've never seen builds confidence or do you think it just is like, okay, I, I did that, now, what, now what's next? Now I know that every time I do that, this happens or do you think it does build confidence in the dog? Well, I think it really depends on the dog. Um, and really, this boils down to reward. And what a lot of people don't realize is we think reward is what we humans believe it is. So words of affirmation, physical affection, something of monetary value. Oh, you know, like food yeah. would be monetary. Oh, here we go. <laughs> but there's another, there's another definition as it pertains to psychology. And it states this. It states that it's any pleasant event that follows a response and therefore increases the likelihood of that response to reoccur in the future. Now, dogs aren't as uh, cognitively aware as we are, so you could actually sum it up in the first three words, any pleasant event. So uh, this is how I explain it to people. Let, let's just go to a, a regular house dog. We view chewing on the coffee table as not a pleasant event because it pissed us off. But if that dog was bored and it problem solved and chewing on the table made it feel better, then that's a pleasant event. So what did the, what's the mathematical equation that happened in the dog's head? Well, when mom and dad is gone and I chew on the coffee table, I felt better. So now you have the serotonin, the dopamine, the feel-good hormones. So it becomes a reward. It becomes a pleasant event. If uh, pissing all over the house is a pleasant event, which we know it is because it relieves the bladder then we, of course, we don't view it as a pleasant event. So we're not thinking that that's a reward to the dog. No, it depends on the so house. Whatever's pleasurable. 
Yeah. So in this case, if you have a dog that has insane ball drive and you set up all these crazy scenarios, he's literally going to process through to get to the end result. He's like on autopilot. He's got a deeply programmed subconscious mind. Just give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. I don't care what you give to me. So that's what we see in these high drive dogs. But then there's some lower drive dogs that uh, I, I know there's quite a few departments that don't want high drive. They want something, you know, you can go into the schools and smaller departments. They don't get a lot of bites. So they're wanting single purpose. And, you know, so you, you get these, these different behaviors. I think that's where you run the risk of, of creating an insecurity. Because if the handler or the trainer is not understanding all the stuff that we've talked about this far, if they're not behaving right, now you've got to look at the social environment of humans. So when I was going through my social psychology class, I, I learned some awesome stuff. And you have this whole protecting of the ego. So you get these training groups and you set up this scenario and the guy that has the more um, timid dog with lower ball drive, you set up this scenario. What's the handler thinking in his head? What do you think when his dog's shutting down a little bit? What do you think he's thinking when all the eyes are on him? Uh, yeah, that he. We talk about that. Oh, he's a lot. freaking I'm out. Talking, yeah, when dead dog and he's freaking out. Dog. He's yeah. saying, "Oh my god, see, yeah. look at you're making me look bad." And it's like we live vicariously through our dogs, and we judge our personal performance based on our dog performance. And then, so now you've got stress. So now the the handler has cortisol flowing through the blood. Now they're trying to problem solve. Okay, we need to do this quick so I can save face. And so then that's where they start getting more forceful with the dog and frustrated. The dog, uh, according to the Department of Psychology at the University of Florida, dogs read and get our body language right 90% of the time. They're better at reading human body language than our closest primate, a chimpanzee. So they know that you're stressed and you're pissed. Well, they're already stressed and you're just adding insult to injury. The best thing you could do is set them up for success, put a smile on your face, and guess what? If you bomb the whole training scenario, it's okay. Instead of taking it out on the dog, have some integrity, walk out, pull your trainer aside and say, hey, what can I do differently? I didn't show that I was stressed, but how do I go forward to get my dog over this? And that's where you guys come in. You guys have enough experience. You can coach people, but they need to put their ego aside and be able to say, hey, um, I need some help here. Speaking of yeah, health. that's a big thing in one of in our HRDs. We tell them yeah. dog envy is a problem, and yeah. just yeah. because the the five guys that went before you, their dogs do this like a rock star, doesn't mean that we're judging you as a shitty person because your dog struggled with it. And yeah. um, right. the frustration is that whole adage of of whatever of your stuff goes down the leash to the dog is old and true. It's never been proven that it isn't true. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't actually like that term. It goes down the leash. I, I actually did a video on that. And the reason why I don't like that term, and I'm encouraging trainers to, to shift the way that they explain this, because I've talked to handlers where I, they said, yeah, yeah, I know. My trainer said it goes down the leash. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And they're like, um, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm putting out an energy field and it's rippling down the leash. Oh, you can't. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I swear, I Pokemon. <laughs> because no one explains it any further than that. And so literally, handle, yeah, that, especially green handlers, they're, yeah, they're walking away and they don't understand that the leash has nothing to do with it. Um, I used to do seminars for the Great Dane Lady. 
she uh, focused on physical health and, and she heard one of my seminars and she said, hey, I want you to come and piggyback with me. And we went to this, uh, we were doing a seminar for the American Kennel Club. We had like, I don't know, 200 trainers and breeders and so on and so forth. And one of the invited guests was a herding dog, uh, herding dog university out of Indiana. And I said, you know, I've never trained a herding dog. How do you do it without an e-collar from a distance? She says, well, I project my energy. It's all about facial expressions and body language. I said, but a dog's visual acuity is only 2075, according to Dr. Stanley Corrin, which means their vision is actually blurry. And she goes, well, that's when I give a harsh tone and I throw my, my shepherd's uh, staff and they can see the movement of it. And I said, yeah, that's true. And so they're literally reading and my body language from a distance based on the stick and my tone of voice, because I don't throw the stick if I'm not upset, if they made a wrong move. And I thought, holy cow, that's, that's pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, and the emotional contagion, that's, that's another one. And man, I get really excited talking about this stuff. So I apologize if I'm going a little too crazy here. Have you guys ever heard of the emotional contagion? Uh, I don't think so. No, I, uh, I clean shit kennels for a living, so I don't get to hear that type of stuff. <laughs> it's, which is truly why you sold your kennels. Don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is one of the reasons. <laughs> but the emotional contagion is the transfer of emotions from one person to another. So like if you have a best friend and somebody in their family dies, you'll, you know, if they're, I don't know, really sad, you're going to feel that sadness and you're going to be sad with them. Uh, if you're angry at something and, and your spouse gets angry with you, that's the emotional contagion. Well, we recently found out like in the last five to six years, I don't have the research paper in front of me, but somewhere around there, that it's interspecies. And what they did is they literally brought uh, test subjects in with their dog to the lab and they kept them coming back until the dog was comfortable with the place. There was no stress in the dog at all. They completely ignored the dog and they stressed out the owner. Now I'm paraphrasing and I'm shortening the whole study, but when they, they weren't even focusing on the dog, when they stressed out the owner of the dog, the dog itself got stressed out when they read the body language of the owner. So there, there's so much to this when you have problems like fear or overaggression. That's like um, uh, trying to get a dog off a bite and the handler screaming and yelling. Well, that's kind of what we train the dog to do. The more fight there is, the dog fights harder and the handler's just joining into the fight. And so the dog's feeding off that energy as well. But it, it has to do with body language. It really does. And, and also their smells too. You know, the chemical reactions, dogs can smell that too. Interesting. So we're talking about handlers helping dogs. And speaking of help, uh, we got to have some help paying some bills on this thing. So uh, we're going to take a break for a second. Uh, And don't fast forward through these and listen to them. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll be back in just a second with Brian. All right, guys. Scottsdale, Arizona, 2020 hits. Uh, First of all, congratulations to Jeff Barrett, one of the owners of Hits, uh, for his retirement. Jeff's a good dude. Ted and I are going to be instructing there this year. It's the best conference out there, period. It's yep. the biggest and the best. Um, it's in Scottsdale. Never been there. Can't wait. You know, it's in the desert, and the hotel has a wave pool. So, guys, we can go surf. All you dudes can be out there, you know, with your dad bods and all that stuff, um, hanging out. Ted, 
Here, when and where? Can. What are we doing? <laughs> Scottsdale, Arizona, <laughs> uh, August 18th to the 21st, 2020. Uh, yeah, everybody can bring their night their their night shift tan out and surf in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's uh, hits <laughs> canine letter K number nine dot net. Get signed up. I think about six weeks before uh, tickets go up, or so. Be sure to. Uh, Head on over. And if you were part of a Patreon member of ours, we gave away a free uh, pass this year, too. So also pays to be a Patreon member because you could go for free. Well, at least the the, the uh, ticket price would be free. So, yeah. Uh, one of our other sponsors that we're really stoked about and has been with us for a long time is Ray Allen. Ray Allen has been around forever. And it's not just for police dogs. It's for working dogs, pets, uh, bird dogs, gun dogs, and, of course, police dogs and sport dogs. But they have everything from leashes to handler equipment to uh, we actually do the muzzles for them, the uh, Ramtech muzzles here, uh, the working dog drag ones there. So, yeah, those are uh, fantastic. If you use the discount code working dog radio, uh, you'll get 10% off. Um, and it's rayallen.com. Head on over, hit them up, order something. I'm a knee collar guy, right? I train all my dogs on knee collars. And I use, for all my working dogs, man, it's Dogtra. That's all it is, Dogtra. Uh, the, I, I maintain over and over the 1900S is the best collar on the market for police dogs. 1900S by Dogtra. It can, you can get a Molly attachment for your vest for the controller. And uh, I, I love the 1900S. Ted, talk about the ball popper that you love. Oh, yeah, the ball popper and the ball popper pro. It's a popper and a dropper. You can tie multiple of them together, I think eight at a time, and it'll launch a tennis ball about waist height, and then you can load up to three to drop them. And I hide them. I actually modify them and put magnets all over them and stick them under cars, under our bus, and all kinds of stuff. We'll put them inside cars to launch tennis balls out when we're training dogs. Batteries are rechargeable on the pro, and it's got a little bit uh, shorter response time on the remote, so you get a better response from the dog and the window is much shorter in terms of the reaction from the unit but yeah i love that thing uh we gave away some of those also during our patreon giveaway uh christmas last year so and the year before that so there's some people out there that have gotten that love them so i like i like them a lot for sure yeah we have a discount code if you check them out go to dogtra.com discount code wdr10 for 10 percent off a single item over 200 dollars. dogtra.com yeah, you know, one of the sponsors has been with us since the beginning is Highland Canine out in North Carolina. It's the Pergasons, Jason and Aaron. Love those guys. Jason's actually been on the podcast before. He's an instructor at a lot of the conferences we go to. Fantastic trainer. Uh, they run a school there that accepts a VA, and they've got customers from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, they've developed programs for um, African nations, and uh, have had lots of dogs come through. Uh, they do green dogs. They do seminars. They do top-to-bottom police dogs with handler schools included. Uh, and because of that, they've got on-site living accommodations for handlers during handler schools. So top-to-bottom, front-to-back, beginning to end, they got you covered. Head over to Tactical Police Canine Training dot com that's letter k number nine and check out everything they've got going on in the seminars coming up we actually gave away a 500 hundred dollar gift certificate during uh, our christmas giveaway in 2019 so yeah be sure to head over tactical police canine letter k number nine training.com so one of the best things that we ever have gotten on this podcast is our relationship with vet care and their product quick derm we make no secret about it i tell everybody um, they're like, yeah, my dog's got this going on. This this injury got cut here. Do that. I'm like, get quick derm by vet care. It's it's like magic elixir. It really is. It's crazy how good it works and how fast it is as advertised. It's one of my uh, favorite relationships that we have. Quick derm by vet care. Um, Ted, 
I know you use it on yourself, I think. Yeah, I got nuked by a dog last year and had to get some stitches, but it definitely helped clean it up. Uh, in fact, you have a buddy that's up close mm. to you that owns a uh, pet business that had a dog come in that he used it on to keep this dog. The, the problem from getting worse that the owner didn't realize had that had the dog had when he got dropped off, uh, which is kind of what this stuff's about. It prevents little things from becoming big problems. So, you know, dogs cut themselves, especially working dogs. You know, stuff gets stuck in their paw. Happy tails, another common one. Um, they get their muzzles all torn up and stuff from dealing with uh, crates and kennels. It's super easy to apply. Works really well. You only have to do it once a day. It's not like rocket science. So, yeah, head over to VetCare. Dot us and use the discount code 10WDR for a 10% off discount off your first order. Speaking of easy, that's why I like VetCare. But also easy is Horizon Structures. We get information uh, passed to us all the time and questions passed to us all the time about, oh, what's the best kennel to use? Do you use this? Do you use you know, these pre-made panels, whatever else? If you're going to invest the money to create a commercial, whether it's the police side or whatever, invest the money in horizon structures it's literally like plug and play so you have the pad set up you tie it into sewer and water they show up with a flatbed truck they drop that sucker off and it's plugged in you can put dogs in it an hour after they leave it's fantastic eric what do you think of those things i I tell you this i remember you built that uh that one kennel that you had i guarantee you if you knew that horizon structures was available you'd have just done that it's i can't um i'm looking everywhere for a kennel and there's just never anything's not perfect. You know, it's just not working out for me. So I'm trying to find a a good spot where I can get Horizon Structures. I've been on their website, horizonstructures.com, went through everything, looked at the tutorials, looked at their videos. Um, Dude, it's, you drop it, put dogs in it. So how simple is that? It's amazing. They have financing available, everything, horizonstructures.com. Yeah. And it's custom. You can literally do whatever you want, like from insane, from mild to wild, insane to normal. I mean, anything you want, but yeah, horizonstructures.com. Hit them up. All right, guys, we are back. Uh, hopefully you listen to the commercials because we have some great discount codes in there. Support our um, our sponsors for us. Uh, great people. I mean, there's some really good stuff in there. So we're back talking um, with Brian Gagey, who is going to sh- tell me some more shit that I'm wrong about, which is awesome. I always love learning <laughs> shit that I um, am <laughs> incorrect about. Uh, it's perfect. Um, so... Besides doing all the the videos, uh, he Brian gets in some of the um, forums. We mentioned on the last episode there is a forum for uh, canine handlers and trainers. Uh, Leo Canine Discussion. Uh, it canine is spelled out. Leo Canine Discussion page. Um, and uh, I saw a couple things that I want to get into with you. Um, and you, you commented on them with a little bit of research data and everything, and I, I found it to be super fascinating. So we just did an episode uh, about marker training for police dogs. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of old school trainers don't know it. They don't believe in it. They actually are doing it, and they just don't realize they are doing it. Um, so the constant uh, – and I, I always figured it was a preference, but the constant um, – Discussion back and forth is if you're using a marker, be it a clicker or a word, what do you like and why do you like it? And the prevailing, I should say, at least from what I read, the overwhelming number of people are like, I like a clicker because a clicker doesn't have a mood and it doesn't have a speci- it doesn't have a different tone and you can't overemphasize it. It's it's the one uh, sound. And then other people are like, yeah, but I like to use a word. And usually it's because 
handlers and owners of if you're training pet dogs will lose the clickers. They're not going to use them. Their timing's going to be off. Um, so I, they, most people use the word yes or maybe okay. Um, actually, it's funny. This um, King Corso I'm doing uh, because I know the owners. I'm teaching thank you as the uh, as the marker. So when they sit, their butt hits. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, it, I find it to be pretty cute. But anyways, so but in the someone brought it up in a discussion the other day, and you got in there and and if I remember right, you said that there's you did a study or there's been a study done that the word is better than the clicker or maybe the clicker is not as proficient as people think. Do I, do, am I reading that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, it was, uh, Cynthia Chandetti from the university of Therese and her team, they took 51 dogs and trained them on novel tasks. So 17 dogs were trained using the clicker, 17 dogs with verbal reward markers, and they used the word Bravo and 17 with only a reward. And what they found in the end is that, and I'm going to quote this because I have it up here in front of me. It says, learning seems to be independent from the type of sound anticipating the food reward. And even more strikingly, it seems to be equivalent either with or without the clicker sound or the word bravo. So again, this boils back to the, the human's belief of what reward is. And so dogs will perform based on the reward so long as that reward is a pleasant event to the dog. And there's different levels, too, of, you know, desire for the reward, too. I I confirmed that through um, neuroscientist Dr. Greg Burns from Emory University. So, yeah, unfortunately, you could literally train a dog without saying anything. Just when they do the right thing, give them the reward and watch what happens. They're they're creatures of habit. They're going to want to repeat it. Because there's that equation again. Well, when I put my when they said sit and I put my butt on the floor, they gave me a ball. I love the ball. That had more power than the words that we say or a clicker being used. Now, what I Neil uh, uh, Fuser, I, I uh, interviewed him for my my video blogs, and he said, well, I don't really use the clicker necessarily for the training, but it's just neutral, and I'm all about that. And I agree with that because it's neutral and because good trainers that are teaching like human behavior and how that affects the dog, we know that our behaviors fluctuate up and down for crying out loud people. Some people roll out of bed pissed off. And so if they go out and work with their dog, they're not going to have a good day. The dogs aren't going to want to respond well. So the clicker does become neutral as far as emotions. But then my analytical brain says, well, how about having discipline? You know, if you're going to train dogs, then maybe have discipline to throw a smile on your face. So I'm not opposed to it. I'm not going to bash anybody for using the clicker. I just, my preference, I like to look at the the science of it. So, and I just read it verbatim for you. So that's what the study said. And the sample size was well above the minimum standard. Um, I don't look at research. So the minimum standard, whenever you do a scientific research, the a sample uh, population is a portion of the overall population. So they're saying whenever you do a scientific research, be it humans or animals, the minimum population or sample population is 30. Anything below that, there's not enough statistical value. So ignore it. They use 51 pet dogs, which is almost twice the amount of the minimum required. So in other words, what that's stating is that, hey, that's a pretty solid um, case study here. So I've, I've had trainers, um, I've, I've 
you know, I watch a lot about trainers and when they're doing, um, so when they're doing marker training and they're doing, um, I don't know, we'll just use sit as an example, sitting in front of you, sit, click, and then they reach into the pouch and get the reward. There's that gap in time. So there are trainers <laughs> that believe that the clicker timing is more, or the word or whatever, is more important than the timing of the actual reward. Um, it, uh, so it says, um, so that is basically opposite of what that study shows, that the um, timing of the reward, because there was a discussion on the, on the LEO canine the other day about um, rewarding a dog for when they come out of a room that's negative that they didn't alert in. And we right. had a comment on there, a study about uh, the length of time that a dog, their short-term memory. Can you get into that? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Well, because I study uh, belief and behavior, um, is behavior automatic in some cases? Yes. But a lot of times it has to be repeated. It's like riding a bike. You know, you fall off. If you just quit, you're never going to learn how to ride a bike. Just because you've been on it once, you're, you're not going to because you have to dedicate conscious mind to that. And in essence, that's what we're doing with dogs. We're forcing them to use their conscious mind to figure out tasks. When you get that repetition, that's when it programs the subconscious mind. So I said, okay. So we're, what we're doing is we're talking about memory here. So I dove into this side study when I was doing my research paper at Purdue, and I said, okay, well, what is the memorability of a dog? We know that a lot of memories has to be repeated because our short-term memory portion of the, the brain is like a filter. There's so much that goes on every day. We don't need to remember everything. I mean, imagine if you had to remember every dump you took. That's frivolous information. Everybody does it two or three times a day, hopefully, or uh, some people once a week. But either way, it, it's frivolous information. Everybody does it. It's a natural act. It must be done or you're going to explode. So the, the short-term memory says, yeah, I don't need that. But if you sit down on the toilet and a monkey crawls out your butt, you're going to be thinking about that over and over and over again, which is going to dedicate it to long-term memory. You will never forget that experience. So then I said, okay, well, how does this affect us um, as far as training? And what's the difference between human short-term memory and a dog short-term memory? So human short-term memory is 30 seconds or less. So if you don't start repeating it, what you just experienced for over and over and over again, within that 30-second window, it gets erased to a point out of the brain because it's, it, there's just too much information. So what I found is that a dog's short-term memory is 10 seconds or less. So for example, a puppy, if a puppy poops on the floor uh, and you walk into the room a minute later and you start screaming and yelling at the dog, the dog has no idea why it's not making the connection. Yeah, it, it just thinks you're yelling about the poop being present, not about the placement of it. So the dog's not making the connection. Oh, it's when I squat. And that's why any good trainer is going to say, well, you have to catch the dog in the act. And that is based on that 10 second window. So there's a false belief. And uh, I do real quickly, I forgot to do this earlier, but the definition of belief, there's two of them that I really, really like. <clears throat> so the belief from the Merriam-Webster's dictionary it states that a belief defines an idea or a principle which we judge to be true. Well, sometimes our judgment is wrong, which means there are times that our beliefs can be false. 
And my favorite is the Oxford Dictionary. It says that belief is the acceptance that something exists or is true, especially one without any proof. So we hang on to these ideologies and these beliefs, and sometimes we're flat out wrong. So my point is, is that when you take a dog into a, let's say a blank room, which was the discussion, if you don't praise the dog within 10 seconds of it doing the search, and it can be while you're still in the room, if you leave and 20 seconds go by, you run the possibility of the dog not making the connection as to why you're praising. I mean, isn't that why we praise is to let the dog know that what they just did was good. But if the dog doesn't remember what it just did, right. then you're just giving frivolous praise, which well, is that's great. The, it's still going to build the bond. Yeah, and that's one of the things that Eric and I talk about all the time is overpraising or consistently praising the dog when they're not doing something that is good. And I see it yep. all the time in bite work, like the dog is biting and he's fucking pulling and his grip is shallow and he's fucking thrashing and he's doing everything that I don't want him to do. And the dog handler's like, good boy. And <laughs> Eric is running around screaming like Sam Kennison. He's not a good boy. Don't tell him that. And, um, you know, so he were like, no. And some dogs don't care. Like my personal dog, when he's working, he doesn't want me to touch him. He doesn't want me to talk to him. Yeah. He just wants me to get out of his way. And, you know, yep. he, he, he likes to be petted when he's at home. But, um, mm-hmm. He just doesn't, when he's working, he just does not value inner interaction. And that's one thing that Eric talks about all the time, too, with one of the one of the drills we do specifically, the amoeba drill. Um, and then, to some extent, one of the muzzle drills uh, highlights really successfully that the dogs do not work for the handler because they like you. They work because they like working. And, right. um, you know, in the amoeba drill, we'll have two, three, four people in a room. We'll send the dog in, and he'll just decide whichever one he wants. And then at that point, you can stand there and watch, and anybody in that room can walk up to the dog when they got a muzzle on, and they're just drilling this dude, and they can load him up and slingshot him in. The dog doesn't even care. And for the most part, sometimes they'll turn around and be like, don't fucking touch me and tag that and try and tag that guy. And they'll do that to the handler too. But you know, it's not a, um, they're not working because they love you. They're not working because they like you. They're working because that's what they were bred to do. And that's what they've been trained to do. They want to fucking work. They want you to get out of the way. My personal dog, he does not want to be touched when I'm working. Like he'll actually lean away from me. If I go to pet him, like he'll be like, he'll look at me like, what are you doing? Like, just leave me alone. We can do that later. What do you want me to do? (laughs) And that's the ranking of reward that I, was, I touched on a second ago. Um, so uh, Dr. Greg Burns, I interviewed him for an article I was writing for a magazine, and uh, he trained a bunch of dogs to lay calmly in an MRI machine with no sedation, no restraints. And then they trained the dog on different hand signals and, and different smells and, and all this other stuff. It was groundbreaking work, and I believe his research came out in april of 2016 and this guy's you know written articles for like the new york times he's written a book on this um and he specifically was studying the caudate nucleus which is the reward center of the brain and the the interesting thing is he said that the caudate nucleus when we're talking about reward it's the same in humans in that it triggers an emotion that is tied to that reward and that's why we can have different levels it's no different than like, you know, if somebody has the, if money is a primary reward to get 50 bucks, <clears throat> well, that's a good reward, but to get 10,000, that's a bigger reward. So they're going to strive, they're going to ignore the lower because they can see and set their sights on the 10,000. And we found that that's true in dogs. So if you have a dog that loves the ball, 
But if he has the opportunity to bite something and that's the greater, he'll ignore the ball and go for the bite. Competing so motivators. That's, that's right. And it has to do <laughs> that's all that's why. Reward. That's why I'm always talking to people. They're like, they're waving a ball around at the dog while he's biting. And they're like, oh, he'll out for this. I'm like, hey, no, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> he's a ball. He's like, he, I mean, Eric says it best. Eric is like, these dogs have been bred, selected, trained to bite human beings. That is the highest expression of drive for them. Yep. And we're going to wave yep. a fucking tennis ball on their face. They're like, oh, yeah, the dogs will be like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll take that, homie. I'll come off and bite that. Yeah. And no, that doesn't work. <laughs> now, they can be taught. Like, that's how I do what I call the Arkansas out. That's how I do recalls and call-offs for Arkansas State certification. Uh, I do what I call the Arkansas out. But I teach them mm-hmm. an entirely long, complex command where I say, that, like, stop fighting the dog, blah, 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 blah. So it gives them a second to figure it out. And then as soon as they we say the out command, they turn and burn back to the handler expecting to be caught on a tug. Uh, but right. if you just stand there and you're like, dog name out, ain't happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> nope, no way. Uh-uh. So. Right. <laughs> yep. So let me ask you this then. And um, when it comes to like that time uh, that we're talking about, the 10 seconds and the 30 seconds and the mm-hmm. marker versus and the reward, um, do you feel so like, uh, every certification in the United States has a long term down, like the, the dogs have to stay two, three minutes, some places a little shorter, some places maybe a little bit longer. And I mm-hmm. always teach, you know, duration by giving more time and more distance and then rewarding it at, in front of the dog. Um, can they... And it, and it seems to work. I, I'm just curious as to how that whole time thing works is when we're teaching duration and then I'm rewarding them, are they, do they know that if they just lay here, I, food man is coming back and giving me something no matter how long it takes or, or how, how are we putting this together? Well, I think it really depends on the education of the person that trained the dog. So most trainers understand the three D's distance, duration, duration, distraction. And we use like systematic desensitization uh, concept of it, Um, which is uh, like, you know, somebody that's afraid of thunderstorms or like a dog that's afraid of thunderstorms. One thing you can try is to put a thunderstorm on uh, like a radio or a boom box, have it at a smaller volume, make the dog do something fun, slowly turn the volume up over the time. You can do the same thing with a down too. You know, you leave them there for 30 seconds in the beginning and then you reward them and then you slowly get, you know, more distance and more time and then you come in and give the reward. So what happens is after the dog is trained, people get comfortable. And so they leave the dog there for five minutes and they come up and they give the dog the reward. Well, dogs have a level of the concept of time. And so because you've conditioned the dog that five minutes is where we're at every single time, then, yeah, the dog is going to expect it. Well, now you're not giving it to them if you have to go longer than that. And the dog's going to get anxious and begin to get stressed. And that's typically where they break the down command. So a good handler is going to mix it up all the time. So after, even after the dog is trained. So sometimes we're going to leave the dog in a 30 second down, another time five minute down, then 10 minute down and 15 minute down. Well, then we're going to go back to 12 minutes like just pick an odd number and you're constantly mixing it up. So that way the dog does not have an expectation. I think that's where a lot of people fail in, in their continued training. They just get so comfortable. Does that, does that answer your question? Is that kind of what you were getting at? 
Yeah. Um, it's just, I don't know. It, it works. <laughs> it's one of those things, again, the way I do it works. And, and uh, I, you know, one of the things that we used to do when I first got into canine as a handler was because we were doing um, a USPCA final test to graduate from the class before we took our state certification, everything came to a finish. So everything we did, the dog had to come, sit next to you, and then got rewarded for that. So mm-hmm. we just started, um, and so all the dogs were breaking all the time. They would never stay in the in the two in the two minutes um, is what the the test was. They had to stay in the down uh, while you. I think it's like fifty feet away. Um, they would con- it was constantly like one of the biggest pain in the asses to train. And I had an uh, an old trainer. He's like, don't don't reward him next to you. Reward when he's up there. When you know, go up to him, or uh, when we have to do a halfway where the halfway down, we throw the ball over their head, or we walk up and reward them. But um, I just was wondering if if you and and I don't use a marker for that. Uh, I don't use mm-hmm. really a marker for any obedience per se because it's um, I I just don't I see it better for detection and some other things like that rather than uh, than actual obedience. Um, uh, sure. But I, I just didn't know if, if dogs can learn duration or if they even think that way, if that's even a, if that's even well, a thing they do. Or, or, or are we just teaching them to just chill out? Well, I think that also depends on the dog, but I believe that going up and telling them good job for that stay puts that, makes that neural connection in the brain. Oh, He's telling me because I stayed for 30 seconds or five minutes or whatever it was. <clears throat> when you call the dog, you literally are changing the environment. Again, going back to changing the environment. Because if, if the dog did a five-minute stay and you don't praise the stay, and now this is based on the science, of course, when you call the dog, the brain transitions. And then you say, good dog. In my opinion, based on the research, the dog is saying, oh, he's praising me because I'm coming. There was no praise in the dog's mind for the stay because the dog has changed the action. And that's typically why most trainers say, well, some trainers say, go back up to the dog and tell them, good job, give them the reward. Because that's what you're trying to mark right there is the act of staying put. And that's, that's the other thing. And you put a dog in a blank room as that discussion that was on the uh, LEO uh, forum there. The dog is searching. There's nothing there. He didn't indicate you need to praise right away when he's done searching like good dog. That way the dog is making the connection. Oh, it was the act of searching the room without sitting. You take the dog out of the room. You just change the whole environment. So it's kind of the same thing with those long distance and time downs or stays or sits or whatever you want to call it. Does that make sense? So, and then one one other thing I want to talk about real quick on it, and I'll stop hoarding the conversation. Ted can throw some <laughs> stuff in there. Is um, when we talk about the power of the reward. Um, so we have dogs that come through, even some police dogs in the in the beginning. Um, depends on on what they're used to. Uh, that um, so I, I started going back to using food for a lot of things just because I get a lot more reps. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do believe in toy rewards and all, all that other stuff, but I also have a ton of success with 
the removal of pressure being the reward on the dog. Uh, I do it with pet dogs and, and with some police dogs. Um, absence of anything else to give them the removal of the pressure from the leash and the collar, uh, you know, uh, so basically a negative reinforcement situation. Do you, do you see that as, as strong as a lot of folks do see that as a reward in the way we're teaching dogs and why they do some things? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm huge on teaching the four criteria that make up operant conditioning which is your positive and negative punishers and uh, positive and negative reinforcers. And oftentimes I'll, I'll use like just one, like a positive punisher, which is something unpleasant, which I think a lot of people misinterpret that too, because it's, uh, I mean, as police officers, if, if somebody has the bad behavior of speeding and you pull them over and add a ticket and a fine to their behavior, that's a positive punisher. People tend to relate positive punishment with something painful. And that's really not it. Um, it's just about adding something unpleasant. And, of course, the negative punisher is removing something. Um, so if you're petting a dog and they stand up from a sit and you stop petting and then you say, sit, uh, that removal of praise, if the dog wants it again, what they have to do, it has to put his butt down. So sometimes the negative punisher works. Sometimes it doesn't and the dog just ain't getting it. So that's when we go to a pop with the leash, for example. Positive reinforcer, self-explanatory, it's whatever's pleasurable to the dog. And the negative reinforcer, like you said, it's removing an adversive condition through the change of behavior. So if my wife is nagging me to take the trash out, if I want her to stop nagging, I have to take the trash out. So, it, it, yeah, I, I totally support that. I just want people to have a clear understanding of what each one of those actually is. And I, I'm sure you guys got that, but, uh, you know, I want oh, your yeah. listeners to have a very clear understanding of, of what that means. Well, I tell people all yeah, the time. Yeah, we did a whole episode there, on it. Yeah. <laughs> I tell people there's four quadrants there for a reason, and they all look at me like I'm nuts. But um, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you can use all of them, I promise. Uh, so right. before we kind of wrap up, um, one of my first or my early exposures to you was this outing conversation. So routinely, yeah. if there is one fucking thing that is going to cause all kinds of shit to go haywire. It is trainers talking about how to out a dog. And this is not a, I don't, this is not for those listening. This is not going to be a fucking conversation about which is the best way to do it. We're simply talking about a verbal out here. Um, believe me, anybody that knows me knows that I know how to choke a dog off and I know how to use a breaker bar. Um, I also know how to teach a dog to do a verbal out. They all have to, all of my dogs at Torchlight do it. They all go through state and national certifications that require it. And they all do it all the time um, <clears throat> until they don't. So <laughs> um, one of the conversations you had uh, and, and outs get fucked up from a various like when they leave me, the outs are good. Outs get screwed mm-hmm. up because you've got two people involved that have to have be on the same page and they have to have good timing at the same time. Right. So inevitably you start getting into confusion and conflict and all these other things where you were saying, like we talked about earlier in this episode, where our nonverbal communication or our modeling or, uh, you know, where we're giving the dog opposition by popping them the leash and saying out is different than our verbal command, which is out, out, out. But we're then giving them opposition reflexes, which is what we do to teach them to bite when we back tie them and we're handling with a leash. So all of a sudden, right. and then on top of that, your decoy is moving around and doing completely opposite of what he's supposed to be doing. So all of a sudden you get a really clean out and then it goes to shit. So. 
Mm-hmm. When we're talking about outs and we have an animal that is the highest expression of their strongest drive is to bite a person. So all that is the ultimate expression of their drive. So from the cognition and like the, the brain side, talk about what's going on and let's kind of go down that rabbit hole for a little bit. Well, and I had a real interesting conversation with Neil about that too. And, and I, after talking to him, I, I, I really like his philosophy about it. Um, but I also think there's a hundred ways to skin a cat too. I, I don't think that one particular technique is going to work on every single dog uh, because of the different levels of drive. So the, the video that I made was based on, it was an old technique I learned years ago, but then being that I do a lot of research, that's what I like to do. It's not that I think one method is trumps all, but I want to take different types of methods for any type of canine training and say, okay, which one has more supporting scientific data based on what I know about cognition, the brain, the subconscious mind, and all that other stuff. So I talked about um, when the dog is on, pulling slowly up, like you don't add pressure first, you calmly say out because we know that yelling, screaming, and harsh corrections is part of the fight. My job is to change the belief by changing the environment as the handler. The decoy, that all stays the same. But if the handler stops doing what they've been doing that created a deeper, intense fight, then we see a shift in the dog. But then again, we have to consider the thalamus. So it doesn't matter if the handler calms down if the dog's not paying attention to the handler. So I talked about saying, ows, real nice, pull up just a little tiny bit. And then wait a second. And there's always a pause between the the command and the tug. And it's not a tug. It's just a slow ratchet upward. And what I found is because the thalamus is focused on the bite, they're not paying attention to the handler. So we want to trigger or activate the subconscious mind, which is designed to keep us alive. And because I'm going straight up, there is no forward oppositional reforce or reflex, excuse me, because we always back tie from a lower position. The dog can feel that on his body. But when I come up just a little bit, I'm changing the environment. And eventually that slip collar begins to invoke the gag reflex. And that's where we see the dog kind of turn to say, okay, what's going on now they're paying attention to the handler. Dad or mom is calm. And then you just go, if the dog doesn't let go, lift up a little bit more. The idea is that you're just changing the environment. Everything that a handler is doing that has a problem with this is only adding to the fight. They're, they're not changing their behavior, and they're not changing any form of correction because a, a good decoy is going to grab the collar, reef that collar forward, reef it sideways, reef it back. I don't know too many dogs that are going to come off when – or excuse me, no, no, no. I don't know too many suspects that are getting – attack without a bite suit, without any protection, who is going to calmly grab that collar and say, ows, pull a little bit, ows, pull a little bit. Now, I did have a cop tell me that a suspect actually did that. So I I had to stand corrected because I've just never heard of that. And most of the time it's like, oh, crap, I'm going to the hospital. And that's why they're freaking out. They're screaming bloody murder, rolling all over the place. And so we see a completely different behavior, but there's yeah. possibilities in, in any method. But the, the whole concept of it is, is that particular technique is just changing the environment. You're changing the normal behaviors and you're activating the subconscious mind for that dog to say, hey, what's going on? Why, why can't I breathe so easily? That's like the choke off method or, um, you know, like I, I know Paul Ludwig has one where he puts the leash around the dog and he rolls his hands forward 
pushing the dog yeah. into the sleeve, which triggers the um, oppositional reflex so that yeah. they want to back out. So does that answer your question? No, it absolutely does. And, you know, we create a lot of habits as handlers, um, whether unknowingly or knowingly. Uh, but, you know, <clears throat> outing seems to be one of those things that causes just for whatever reason, it has become the pinnacle of a fucking canine trainer to teach a dog to out. And I'm like, I don't, I mean, for, I could be honestly, I 110% a recall or a, a recall off of a moving person is harder for me to train than an out. I mean, I can teach an out sure. in 20 minutes I mean, and people act like I'm a nuts and like, I've got these guys in handler school right now. They'll be here. They're going to be with me for like four and six weeks or whatever. And mm -hmm. Um, I won't teach the dogs to out until probably the last week of school. Um, I've already wow. kind of done it before they got here and I'll have it done. And well, and the reason I do that is because there's so much going on with the handling side of it that the handler has to have good timing. They have to look and they have to realize uh -huh. what they're looking at. They have to uh, have good leash tension. They have to have loose or well, correct leash tension, depending on what's going on. And they can't send nonverbal signals that are counterintuitive or that are counterproductive to what they're actually coming out of their mouth because they will mm -hmm. and they'll do it over right. and over and over again. So I don't, the dogs actually already have outs. I just don't let them do it. <laughs> yeah. So they out it off a tennis ball and all that shit, which is fine. We're doing detection work, but like off of people or off of bite work, I'm like, Nope, you're going to lift him off. You're going to break him off. Um, we'll work on the out later. And you know, and I pair it with a recall. I have, we have a whole thing that we do, but it, it's, I, you know, it, this conversation explains why I do that. And I didn't really know why I couldn't put it into words other than I just don't trust the handlers to not fuck it up. So, um, <laughs> well, I mean, and it's not their fault. I mean, they're freaking cops, right? Like they're not canine trainers, you know, they've been handing this mm -hmm. fucking buzzsaw on the end of a line and I only get them for a limited time. And, you know, they right. have to drink from a fire hose and learn all the case law, learn report writing, learn handling, learn all this other shit. And then they still have to go back and be a cop after that. And I'm like, oh, by the way, this is a super complex thing. This is hard to train and don't screw this up. Now that I mean, yep. so rather than <laughs> I just teach them the right way and hopefully that they just stick with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it explains yeah. it explains why um, we do the things that we do, I think. What about you, Eric? Hey, fuck you're out. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the name um, of the episode. Fuck so, <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, As before we wrap up, so let me ask you, Brian, why don't you have a podcast? Well, um, I sold my company last year. I moved up here, married my wife, and, and she was actually running Canines on Duty prior. A lot of people know who she is. It was um, Dawn Rabinowitz. And she traveled around yep. taking photographs of law enforcement um, canine teams and stuff like that. So, you know, that's how people knew canines on duty. So I've one day we were talking, she goes, what do you want to do? And I said, well, man, I'm just obsessed with this psychology. And I know I don't know everything, but I'm learning. And I, I really think that I could help handlers on, and trainers and decoys understand at least why what they're doing either works or doesn't work. And she goes, then you need to start pushing out videos. So that's, that's where I'm starting. That's where I'm at. Yeah. I, I, you should name it the dog nerd or something like that. Or dog geek. Go. Something that <laughs> is, is cerebral. There you go. Yeah. And I don't look at nerd or geek as a negative connotation. I look at it as, you know, um, run this fucking places. Geeks and nerds, man. Come on. The fuck? So I'm definitely a so, nerd with this stuff. For but, sure. 
Oh yeah, this episode will be great uh, for for debate and discussion. Um, oh, this yeah. is one of these episodes because, like I said, we did we did marker training for police dogs, and um, you know, there's lots and lots of people that use markers for. I mean, they did it for bird training and dolphin training and all these other different animals and all this other other things. Um, but I mean, there's there's what you're saying is it could be the belief that the person is using the marker, what they believe. Uh, so it, it's going to definitely, um, hopefully, cause a little bit of discussion back and forth. It should be pretty good. I, I like it. This was uh, I wrote yeah. took a bunch of notes and um, my brain is fried now. So I don't know about you, Ted. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I was trying to think because you're like nobody catalogs every dump they take, but I saw an episode of uh, South Park recently where um, Tom Brady does that. So um, it's a little unfact. Tom, Tom Brady well, catalogs all of his poops. Brain, guess what? If he's repeating that, guess what's on his brain all the time? I don't know. He has like some kind of super gut enzyme or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's a new one. Go look it up. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, hey, uh, just, just- we're, uh, go ahead. Yeah, let me throw out a little disclaimer here for all the listeners. I'm just simply the messenger here. I didn't create these studies. I'm just saying this is what the current research is saying, and this is what we know about dogs. I've experimented with a lot of this stuff, and I've seen a lot of success having this knowledge at hand. So, you know, I'm all about debate and discussion, but uh, as, as you guys have seen in the one video, man, I caught a lot of flack because so many people are like, oh, my God, that violates my belief. Look, I'm just wanting to spread the science. That's it. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, well, that shit happens. People get pissed off about everything uh, and anything. And like when I commented, I was like, I watched it. I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? And I had to watch it a couple of times. And you're like, oh, I'm not used to talking to him in front of a camera. I'm like, oh, I can see that. But like, you know, and I was like, what the fuck? And I asked Alicia to watch it. And she and I watched it together. And I was like, okay, like I get it a little bit now. And she was like, you got to contact him. Have him come on. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, so speaking of which, we're all three going to be instructing at, um, Bravo three this year in Gettysburg, yep. uh, October 26th, 27th and 28th and 29th. So, well, Monday is check-in that I didn't really count, but be there because it's going to be in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So it's 27th through the 29th, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania with, uh, the kids from tripwire operations group. Um, tripwire Bravo three is a, uh, canine, uh, EOD and SWAT kind of like skills combination thing. And then they're also going to have, uh, it's a classroom, plus they also have um, like a working stuff, too, for each one of these disciplines. So it should be pretty interesting. Um, Eric and I are, of course, doing the Dog and Pony show where we do talk about the scenario-based stuff that we're known for. Uh, but, yeah, you're going to be there doing this, which is the dog brain stuff, which I, yep. don't, I don't, when, <laughs> when we start talking at the beginning of the episode, I'm like, fuck, what is this stuff called? Like, what do I say? Like, you're a canine <laughs> psychologist or what? I mean, so because it's not really like a thing, but it is. And so, yeah. Uh, so do you have a website? Uh, yeah, caninesonduty.com. You can also look us up on Facebook and Instagram. That's spelled out, right? Yeah. Not yep. Okay. With the, so, yeah, C-A-N-I-N-E-S, on duty. Yeah. So the, it'll be in the show notes if you're listening to this. Just look at your app, and you can hit the button, and it'll take you straight there um, and give you all the information. E, where are you at? Um, oh, real quick before I give that, uh, what what was the name again of the lady who did the marker study? I think it was a lady, wasn't it? Oh, it was, um, yeah, it was uh, Cynthia. And oh. I just had a brain fart on the last name. Um, hold on, I got it right here. 
I didn't write it down. That's why I'm asking. Well, dang it, Eric. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Okay, here it is. It's it is Cinzia C I N Z I A Chandetti C H I A N D E T T I from the University of Tourist. All right. Cool. Awesome. Thank you very much. I'm going to look that, You're welcome. Look that up. I'm curious to read that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, Ted, I'm at Van S. Canine on Instagram, Van S. Canine Academy on Facebook, and Van S. Yep. Doggy Daycare for all your cute little doggy pictures on also on Facebook. And uh, we're at HRD Police Canine and um, on our Patreon page, Working Dog Radio. How about you? Uh, we, yeah, so all those. And then the podcast that's on working, underscore dog, underscore radio. Uh, we give away a lot of stuff there, a bunch of stuff from Arnaud, from Edo at ALM, Dogtra, uh, Libby from Vet Care, um, also works on tattoos. Uh, so, and, yeah, so follow us there. We do it on Facebook as well. And then we have a Patreon account where you guys sign up. I just did a uh, video I released today about the precursor to my Puppy to Patrol stuff for um, building and maintaining proper grip and uh, targeting and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's all there. Um, 15 bucks a month gets you access to Eric and I special contests and stuff that you can't get on Instagram or Facebook, uh, patches. I just got the new one in, uh, let's just say it's has to do with something about a barrel. So that'll be good. We'll be releasing those pretty quick. Um, and then other than that, mm-hmm. uh, torchlight canine letter K number nine, that's where you can watch, uh, myself or Travis or somebody punch dogs. Um, and then, uh, I think that's it. Thank you. Got the other ones. So. Yeah, so hopefully we're going to see everybody here pretty quick in Dover uh, and then Indiana for uh, HRD for the decoy side. So should be interesting. Uh, Brian, this has been awesome. Um, I learned a lot more that more I learned what I didn't know. But um, <laughs> so I feel well, yeah, so yeah, <laughs> I know when we taught Ellie from uh, from. Uh, signature science on it was the same thing that dude he's like a fucking chemist and when we read his resume i'm like what the fuck am i gonna talk to this guy about so um <laughs> no it was actually it was really good and um you know i enjoyed the conversation and hopefully um everybody listening you know you kind of took some things away about how dogs think other than just wanting to lick their own ass and eat catch it so um yeah, <laughs> yeah go everybody go uh check them out canines on duty.com uh and then if you're gonna be a bravo three you should be because it's gonna be fun uh, he'll be instructing, and Eric and I are going to be there too. But uh, yeah, guys, this has been good. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, awesome. guys. I really Thank appreciate you guys. it. Yep. And right, uh, thanks. Right, we'll see everybody soon. All right, guys. Speaking of uh, getting to train dogs, you know, in the South or in warmer weather, um, we have some good friends down in North Carolina, Highland Canine. Um, their website is tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. Besides all the other things they do, they do supervisors courses uh and ted and i talk about this all the time yep most supervisors that supervise canine units are thrown into that and don't know shit about supervising canine units not at all in um, fact most of the federal case law that you see all of this liability that everybody's worried about most of it's from admins or failure to supervise go look it up it's mm-hmm. failure to supervise for sure oh yeah so they, they've announced they have two classes scheduled. Um, and listen, you don't have to go to North Carolina for these. They do go out on the road. The first one is February 24th to 26th at Monroe Police Department in Washington State. 
So if you're listening to this on the West Coast, you're a supervisor or you have a supervisor that needs uh, a really good class on being a canine supervisor, Washington State Monroe Police Department's hosting them February 24th through the 26th. And in April in Texas, Mansfield PD, April 15th to the 17th. Yep. Um, check them out if, if you want to host your own or see what else they got going on. Tactical Police Canine, letter K number nine training.com. Yep, go hit them up. All right. One of the groups that's been with us since the beginning are the guys from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, that also host the Bravo 3 Conference. Uh, that is Tripwire Operations Group. They have tons of stuff that goes boom, and they are a fantastic training facility for explosives and training of everything related to it for America's first responders, not just for police and military, but also for first responders. So head over to tripwireops.com to hit them up and see what classes they got going on. Um, and then be sure to come and see Eric and I at Bravo 3 this year in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in October. So our very first sponsor on the podcast was Arno out at uh, ALM Suits and Canine Equipment. Uh, the other day on a Facebook group, uh, somebody asked on there, what's what's the best hidden sleeve on the market? Uh, without a doubt, it, is ALM's hidden sleeve. There's probably 10, 15 people on that post and they got in there. ALM, ALM, ALM. It is so easy. His stuff is so good. Arno's a good dude, man. If you get a hold of him, that's the guy answering the phone. That's the guy doing all the work. ALMK9Equipment.com. I have a suit from there. Best hugs on the market. Not even close. The best hugs on the market and the best hidden sleeve. Hit up Arno, ALMK9Equipment.com. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO. That's all capitals for 10% off your first order. You know, one of the things about this podcast that everybody mentions that they love is the intro and exit music. And it was kind of a uh, big deal when we started the podcast to have that. And I want to say thank you personally to Brother Deeg, um, who is the artist and has graciously allowed us to use this music. And everybody be sure to head over to Brother Deeg, D-E-G-E dot net. Uh, buy a T-shirt or go to Spotify or Apple iTunes or wherever and stream his music or go and buy some. Um, he's on tour all the time. He plays Tulsa frequently. Um, I love to see him when he's here. Uh, fantastically talented artist from Louisiana uh, and has graciously allowed us to use his music. So enjoy it. Download more of it. Uh, Brother Deeg, D-E-G-E dot net. Go hit him up, guys. Thanks. You got your reasons. I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.